Welcome everyone to the third reading in, in relation performance works by Peter Roche and Linda Bose, 1979 to 1985. Today we're in the Lower Chartwell Gallery and I'm going to read to you two accounts of the performance Night Peace. Uh, I'm going to read Peter and Linda's account of the piece first and then I'm going to read Wiston Kernow's account, Wiston being the only audience member who attended this particular performance. It's one of the most gripping tales in their entire output, and it's one of my absolutely favorite pieces. So without more ado, I shall start, and I will not be interrupting myself. I'll just read it straight through. Night Piece, a performance by Peter Roche and Linda Bose at the old gasworks site in Freemans Bay, Auckland, 14th of July, 1981. Yes, it did happen. After a lot of speculation and indecision, it actually happened. We kept putting it off for so long, kept dwelling upon so many aspects of this piece. But when it did happen, it had a life of its own. We both feel pretty good about this one. We were worried, working under the threat of prosecution and not really knowing the site at all. Its sheer physical size was quite overpowering out there for a while. It took a long time to overcome this. And I guess that this was an important aspect of this piece. It is without doubt the most dangerous piece we have ever attempted. But danger and risk are two things that I believe are simply byproducts of this work. An interesting thing happened. A surprise to the three of us, I reckon. Yes, that's right. We had an audience of one. One person other than ourselves was there. In such a vast, large, massive space, this had quite an effect. I wonder how he felt about it. I know who it was, so I can ask him. But what is interesting about this, why the performance was not destroyed through lack of any sizable audience, was the relationship that was developed between us during the piece. In fact, I think it suited this piece well. With a large audience present, it would have been a different piece altogether. It was simply bizarre. There was no alternative but for there to be a three-way relationship developed. But for a start, it took a while for us to realize that there was another person present. It was very dark down there, and this lone figure just seemed to emerge from nowhere. I would assume that his involvement with this piece would have been as great as our own. But let's start from the beginning now. The night previous to the piece, we hurriedly dropped off an extension ladder to the upper level of the site. We briefly looked down upon the base of the site made sure that the ladder would reach as far as the top of the wall, towering over the site, and then left again. We returned next evening, only three quarters of an hour before the piece was scheduled to begin. We were quite alone. The wall was a formidable sight that night. The more we dwelled upon the piece, the larger it seemed to become. 
from the top of that wall, I would say there would be a 60 to 70 foot drop to the base of the site. At night, the gap appears even greater. Well, things by this stage had gone too far to even think about turning back. There was nothing to be done but for one of us to climb up the ladder. I went up first and lay on top of the wall. For a minute only, I lay there, and the feeling inside my stomach was not easily overcome. It took a lot to keep myself from panicking. Shit, it was far from pleasant being up there. And then I was only there for a minute, the ladder always within my reach. Well, I got down quick, putting on a brave face for Linda. Sure, it's okay up there, you'll be fine. Up she went. Only she can tell what she went through. But I didn't envy her the task. Up she went and lay there. The ladder, the only link between us now. We stayed like that for five minutes or so, like some weird suicide scene. Maybe a death pact. I don't know. I had a cigarette. Our conversation began to die out. The separation between us grew. With a few parting words of encouragement, the ladder was taken away and she was left alone to handle the situation as best she could. I took the ladder to the other end of the wall. This was the only way for her to get down. Needless to say, a fall could have been fatal. For what, I began to wonder. There was no sign of an audience, but I don't think that bothered us much. For us, the peace had begun. I lit a candle and flashed the torch at Linda a couple of times. This had two functions. It briefly and insufficiently illuminated Linda, and it gave her an indication of where I was. At times, I had to strain to find Linda's position on that wall. From then on, the piece moved fast, relatively quickly in comparison to some of the other works. There was drive in this piece. With a handheld mirror, I caught the candle and moved away from it, holding the candle image in my hand. It didn't take long before I was forced to lose it. Linda was moving, edging her way ever so slowly along the top of the wall. I lit another candle, flashed the torch again and continued on my way. I weaved my way throughout the space in this way. Linda, slow and steady up there. I was forced in directions that I did not want to go, and at other times I was able to exercise my will more freely. Linda had no choice but to continue on her path. A spectator appeared and entered into the relationship. At times, we were in close proximity to one another, but no words were spoken. A silent relationship. All of us intent upon his or her roles, each performing. We went on this way for three quarters of an hour or more until we two had left the site. I went back up top to, get, to greet Linda. Looking down into the space, there were candles, 20 or 30 of them burning away down there, scattered here and there, stretching all the way over the site. What a sight that was. The scale of this piece was amazing. But what was important for us was that we had 
the feeling that we were not overpowered. We had described that space well. So now I'm going to read Whiston's account as the only audience member at the occasion. Night piece, 14 July 1981, old gasworks site, Freeman's Bay, Auckland. I got to Highbury in time for the 742 Beach Haven to the city. Highbury was empty, except for a few teenagers and a stocky character wearing a knitted wool cap like mine, except that his was dark green, a black gabardine raincoat and shiny black boots. As he boarded the bus, I noticed he had a dark blue tie on, a cop maybe. The teenagers were punk in moderation. The girls wore second-hand men's sports jackets, cheap and nasty jewellery, etc. I thought about trespassing and then about the soon-to-begin Springbok tour. Hart had just announced its campaign of civil disobedience, up to the limit of the law. And on TV news this morning, the police department showed off new gas masks, long batons. I wondered about night watchmen. Dave the driver was running off at the mouth as per usual, something about the protesters. The passenger nearest him says, you know Barry Briggs? I read his son is paralysed. We're over the bridge, almost before I realise it. I pull the cord. I'm the only one to get off. My first thoughts to look out for others. Perhaps they've had an idea as to how best to get onto the site. I light a cigarette, hunch myself inside my coat and cross under the motorway onto the footpath that runs along the front of the gasworks. This is an unpopulated part of town, especially at night. Oil tanks, warehouses, Victoria Park, gas tanks. Traffic roars along the motorway. The gasworks, that part of it still in operation, hisses, steams and is well lit. Otherwise, the area's dark. It's a cold night. Not a single fellow art follower in sight. The terrain in front of me is uncertain. Back of it are the remains of the old gasworks, a great concrete and brick shell, at the back of which, on the skyline, is a single wooden house. Its weatherboards lit up by a nearby street lamp, picked out against the deep, dark blue behind, and the yawning blackness it floats above. How to get there? But where is there? I walk toward the well-lit area. No sign of life. Just lights, reflections off tar seal, steam, smoke. A signboard. Do not throw rubbish. Private property. Keep off. So I head back to the security of darkness. Plunge in. There's moonlight but not enough for me to see where I'm putting my feet. The vegetation is more than knee high. It grows over, in and around, what would seem to be heaps of rubble. I stumble almost immediately. There's wet clay underfoot now. Gorse, bugger it. And pools of water. I'm clambering almost. Then I actually bloody fall over and scratch my leg. Later on, I twist my ankle. All this time I'm thinking how ridiculous this is. 
There has to be an easier way to wherever. The others, those others, have probably entered the site from the College Hill side, where surely access is easier. Peter and Linda gave no directions. Again, I headed towards the well-lit area where it's clearer and flatter, taking the chance of being seen. Okay, no one around. It is easier. I push on towards the maybe 20-foot-high concrete wall up ahead. What's in those large, obscure, rectangular gaps in the wall? Above one of them, there's some graffiti. Stage struck, it says. Incredible. I'm walking along a dirt road, which leads, it looks like, up to one of those gaps, which is, yes, a tunnel, a way through into a most extraordinary amphitheatre whose other three walls are 40 feet high or more. The ground is just as broken, but less overgrown than that which I have been stumbling across. I can see my way ahead by the light of the moon, but move slowly, with caution and in awe. What was the floor area? Must be the size of a city block. It's littered with bits of concrete, some immense, variously angled concrete abutments and walls, and near the centre of the site, a large concrete tank with concrete steps up to the roof of it. These I climb and sit myself down on a broken pillar, have a smoke. Look around, no one to be seen, no sound outside that of the motorway traffic, the gas works hiss, and closer by, the occasional scraping of dry toy-toy leaves, one against another. All alone, I check my watch, five past eight. It was to begin at eight. No other audience, either in eyeshot or earshot. I listen hard for footsteps, movements of bodies through vegetation, nothing. I do pick up the sound of dripping water, and now my eyes, too, grow more accustomed. I see parts of old, doubtless gas stoves, lumps of wood. Between me and the north wall, I see an enormous wall which runs the length of the interior. There, up ahead, towards the back of the site, as the breeze moves the toy toys, I catch sight of a light, briefly. Is it a torch? Ah, definitely a torchlight flashing up in her head. Not the same as the small light. My first thought was, here comes some audience. And my second, that first light that I saw was a candle. Have I just caught my first sight of the performance? Ah, now I see another small light, a second candle. And sure enough, the shape of someone moving slowly this way. Dressed in black, bag over his shoulder. I've decided this is Peter and a long-handled torch in his hand. He stops, bends down, and is lighting a candle, which he has fixed in the ground, carefully, because even at ground level, there's some breeze. Then he stands up and flashes the torch up towards the top of the north wall, quickly, and once again, and he moves slowly in my direction, away from the candle. The way he holds his hand out in front and looks intently at it, I think he's letting out a line, holding it taut as he moves. By this time, he's reached the tank 
and it's just below where I'm sitting. I don't know whether he's seen me or not. We seem to be the only people here. We are acquainted with one another, but we're not going to say hello. There's something strange here. Now I see what he has in his hand. It's a pocket mirror. So he's trying to keep the reflection of the last candle in the mirror as he moves away from it. Is he also keeping his own face in the mirror? When he loses the reflection, he stops and lights another candle. Then he flashes the torch at the north wall again, twice. Why? Is he just connecting the trail he has made, his track, with the structure of the space at large by means of the torch beam, a line of light? But he does seem to shine it at a particular spot. I take a good look there. I think I can make out a lump on the top of the wall. Not sure, though. Behind the wall at that point are trees and clumps of foliage show over the top of the wall. Is the movement, I suddenly think I see branches moving in the wind. And what's this? I see a spark, a reflection, a candle, or a mirror reflecting the light from a candle down here. Can't be. The moon, then. There must be someone up there. Yes, and inching slowly along the wall. It's got to be Linda. 50 or more feet above ground, or concrete rather on this side on a doubtless crumbling wall, intending, I realize, to crawl its length, some 200 yards, I'd guess. I don't believe it. All of a sudden, my feelings about the work change. I feel fear. I feel the idea of the work enlarged to a point where it might be said to take on the entire site. My attention is clamped onto the top of that wall so that I can now hear the scraping sounds she makes as she drags herself along on her stomach. Peter knew she was up there from the start. When he gets lost, when he loses sight of the candle or where he has been, he starts again, and part of that is putting himself in touch with Linda, making sure she's all right, still there. Peter doesn't look where he's going, but where he's been. And while he's doing that, while he's keeping track of himself, he is out of contact with Linda. It was 8.30. Peter had lit some nine candles, and these stretched from the back of the space to where I'd entered it. Not in a line. Basically, he'd been moving west to east, while Linda was moving in the opposite direction. But there were side and back trackings because of the topography, I guess. In the same way, the straightforwardness of Linda's progress is the walls doing. This is another work about being together in a particular place. The place is one which makes being in it difficult, and they seem to have chosen it for that reason. The size of it, the dangers it presents, the illegality of being there, the scatter of candle flames delicately maps, lays brief claim to this hard space. They are thinking about human relationships in spatial terms and about space in terms of human relationships. Linda is almost invisible, but 
because of the danger she runs, she is psychologically the center of the piece's energy. The time it takes her to crawl to the end of the wall will determine the length of the piece, or so I guess. Or will they try to reach the opposite ends of the site at the same time? Linda's well past halfway now. I watch her. There's certainly no one else down here besides Peter and myself. We have not communicated at all. In fact, after a while, I leave him to get on with his work and head off in the direction he has come from, do some exploring. More busted up appliances, an old broken pram, bits of concrete, old tires. Follow the candles back to the concrete tank and Peter's nowhere to be seen. And yes, Linda too has gone. I make out the sounds of a ladder scraping against brick or concrete. I have an impulse to go find them, have a chat, go get some coffee, but the contract persists. I guess I miss the presence of other observers with whom I can share my role. Peter and Linda's absence leaves me feeling alone at the mercy of the space. I check my timetable, my watch, 10 to 9. A maritime bus leaves Victoria Street at 9. I head back, coming across, yes, a 14th candle in the tunnel. He did go that way. Then down past the gas works, thinking now of what I'd say for myself if challenged. There was this artwork. So you're the one who set fire to the toy toys. It'd be hopeless trying to explain. Just say I felt like a walk, or now that I'm closer to the street, I had to take a pee. No need to worry, though. Nobody's around. In the bus shelter, there's an old Māori woman and a young islander, and they're discussing the latest ARA fare hike. And how is anyone going to afford to ride buses anymore? That's the end. So I've read Peter's account and then, Lin, then Whiston's account, but actually the two were merged and published in a journal called Parallax in 1983 uh, in, a, in a piece edited by Whiston titled A Gathering Concerning Three Performances. And what he did in that piece was gather the notes written by Peter and Linda, by himself and by a fellow audience member of the two other performances, Tony Green. And he basically collaged the accounts together to describe each piece and then illustrated the article with still photographs from the performance. And that actually is really how those performances came to light and had a public, not in an exhibition, but in a book format. And I think it's extremely interesting that they chose to disseminate their accounts of these performances by this means. It's a highly democratic way of uh, sharing something, but it also shifts attention 
between the visual and the written and takes you on this kind of narrative journey so that I think you imaginatively are taken to this crazy place where this thing happened. And I don't know, but I find the story really compelling. You're there with them as they're doing this dangerous thing and you're, you know, you're imagining it um, and seeing it played out. And I think the way in which um, the author and the artists sort of displace us from the actuality of that moment is a, a kind of uh, a clever way of making us think about the difference between the live event and our um, reading it later on. And it's no surprise to me that this piece was published in what is described as a journal um, and the first of its kind of postmodern art and writing, uh, the first of its kind in New Zealand, because it's um, not necessarily allowing you to uh, operate within the normal terms of fiction. Something actually did happen. It has a, a documentary purpose. Um, but it's relocated into this literary format in a way that I think makes you very aware of the relationship between the real event and your rethinking it later on. Um, I think it's an amazing text um, and quite unique. Um, and I know that uh, other people found it interesting too and in fact whether the whole piece or just night piece was republished many years later by Alex Calder when he put together a collection of writings uh, that actually were taken from throughout the literary history of, um, uh, from, I don't know, the 18th century to the present, uh, describing um, what he called, I think it's called, the invention of New Zealand by literary means. So I think it's really interesting that he incorporated Whiston's writing into a book like that, starting with, you know, Sidney Parkinson's journals on Cook's voyages and taking you through poetry and fiction and um, other kinds of historical narrative and this one comes quite late in the piece. There you have it. <laughs>